Chapter Ten of After the Divorce by Grazia Deleda, translated by Maria Horner Lansdale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Denham. The next morning, just as on that day so long before, Giovanna was the first to stir, while Aunt Pacicia, who, like most elderly people, usually lay awake until late into the night, still slept, though lightly and with laboured breath. The light of the early winter morning, cold but clear, shone through the curtained window-panes. Giovanna had fallen asleep the night before, feeling sad, though Aunt Pareda's outbreak had annoyed rather than distressed her. But now, as she looked out and saw the promise of a bright day for the journey, she felt a sensation of joyous anticipation. Yes, she had felt quite melancholy on the previous evening before falling asleep, thinking of Constantino, and eternity, and her dead child, and all sorts of depressing things. I have not had a bad heart, she had reflected, and God looks into our hearts and judges more by our intentions than by our actions. I have considered everything, everything. I was very fond of Constantino, and I cried just as long as I had any tears to shed. Now I have no more. I don't believe he will ever come back, and if he does, it will not be until we are both old. I can't go on crying for ever. Why should it be my fault if I can't cry now when I think of him? And then, after all, I am just a creature of flesh and blood like everyone else. I am poor and exposed to sin and temptation, and in order to save myself from these I am taking the position which God has provided for me. Yes, my dear Aunt Poreda, I do remember eternity, and it is to save my soul that I am doing what I am doing. No, I am not bad. I have not a bad heart. And so she very nearly persuaded herself that her heart not only was not bad, but that it was quite good and noble, at least if this was not the conviction of that innermost depth of conscience that depth which refused to lie, and from whence had issued the disturbing veil of sadness that hung over her. It was of her outer and more practical mind, and at last quite comforted. She fell asleep. And now the frosty daybreak was striking, with its diaphanous wings, cold and pure as hoar-frost, against the window-panes of the stranger's room, and Giovanna thought of the sun, and her spirits rose. The older woman presently awoke as well, and she too turned at once to the window. "'Ah!' she exclaimed in a tone of satisfaction, "'it is going to be fine!' They dressed and went down. Aunt Pareda, polite and attentive as usual, was already in the kitchen. She served her guests with coffee, and helped them to saddle a horse. To all appearances she had quite forgotten the discussion of the previous evening. But no sooner had the two women passed out the door than she made the sign of the cross, as though to exorcise the mortal sin as well. "'Very good,' she said to herself, closing the door after them, 
A pleasant journey to you, and may the Lord have mercy on your souls. Through the crystalline stillness of the morning came the sound of shrill cock-crowing, close at hand, further away, and further still, but the little town still slept beneath its canopy of china blue. This time the errors were to make the journey alone. They had to descend into the valley, cross it, then climb the mountain range which they could see beyond, showing grey in the early light, its snow-capped peaks standing out boldly against the horizon. It was very cold. There was no wind, but the air cut keenly. As they descended into the wild valley, the intense stillness seemed only to be intensified by the monotonous murmur of a mountain stream. The short winter grass, bright green in colour, and shining with hoar-frost, showed here and there in vivid patches along the edges of the winding path. From the rocks came a smell of damp moss, and the green copses sparkled with a glittering layer of frost. The whole valley was radiantly fresh and sweet and wild, but here and there gnarled outlines of solitary trees stood out like hermits penitentially exposing their bent and naked forms to the cold brilliance of the winter's morning. In the fields the earth showed black and damp, and long lines of dilapidated wall climbing the hillsides and descending into the hollows looked with their coating of green moss like huge green worms. On and on and on journeyed the two women, their hands and feet and faces numb and stiff with cold. They crossed the stream at a ford where the water ran broad and shallow and quiet. Then they reascended the valley and began to climb the mountain at its further end. The sun, now well above the horizon, was shining with a cold, clear radiance, and the mountains of the distant coast range showed blue against the gold of the sky. The wind had risen as well, and laden with the odour of damp rocks and earth, was stirring among the shrubs and bushes. The two women proceeded silently on their way, each buried in her own thoughts. In the middle of a small defile, overhung by rocks and shadowed by the lofty snow-capped summits of the mountains, they met a man of Bitti journeying on foot. The travellers exchanged greetings, although unknown to one another, and passed on their respective ways. As the women mounted higher and higher, the sun enveloped and warmed them more and more, and they thought of the half of the journey already accomplished, of the purchases they were carrying back in the wallet, of what they would do when they got home, and Aunt Bacchisia thought of Aunt Martina's amazement when she should see Giovanna's outfit, while Giovanna thought of Brontu and of the queer things he would sometimes say when he was drunk. Preoccupied as they were, however, when they caught sight of the white walls of the Church of San Francisco glistening among the green bushes halfway up the mountainside, each thought of Constantino, and said an Ave Maria for him. Shortly after midday they reached home. Olei, set in its circle of damp fields, 
and blown upon by the frozen breath of the mighty sphinxes, whose heads were now wreathed in bands of snow, was far colder than Nuoro, and the sun could barely warm life into the scanty herbage in its narrow melancholy streets. The roofs were covered with rust and mildew, some of them overgrown with dog-grass, the walls were black with damp, the trees nude and brown. Here and there a thin line of smoke could be seen curling upwards into the limitless space above, but, as usual, the village appeared to be utterly silent and deserted. In the crevices of the walls the little purple and green cups of the Venus's looking-glass bloomed chillily. Speckled lizards crawled into the sun, and snails and shining beetles mounted patiently from stone to stone. Aunt Martina, seated on her portico, spinning in the sun, saw the arrival of the travellers, and was instantly devoured by curiosity to know what they had in their wallet. She controlled herself, however, and returned their greeting with courteous composure. Towards evening Brontu arrived. He visited his betrothed every three days, and this evening his mother decided to accompany him, in order to see the purchases made by her neighbours in Nuoro. A sparse little fire of juniper wood was burning on Aunt Bacchisia's hearth, throwing out fitful gleams of light across the paved flooring, and lighting up the earthen walls of the kitchen with a faint rosy glow. Giovanna wanted to bring a candle, but the visitors prevented her. Aunt Martina, from an instinct of economy, and Brontu, because in the dim firelight he felt freer to gaze at his betrothed. The attitude of the latter towards her future mother-in-law and towards Brontu himself was quite perfect. She had a gentle, subdued manner, and spoke in childlike tones albeit expressing sentiments of profound wisdom. She gave shy glances from beneath her long, thick lashes, and might have been a girl of fifteen, so guileless and innocent was her bearing. She was not, in truth, consciously acting a part. What she did was purely instinctive. Brontu was madly in love with her, and now, when he had been drinking, he would run to her, and, throwing himself on his knees, repeat certain puerile prayers learned in infancy. Then he would begin to cry, because he realised that he was tipsy, and would swear that never, never again would he touch a drop. This evening, however, he was entirely himself, and sat talking quietly, enfolding Giovanna all the while in a passionate gaze, and smiling and displaying his teeth which gleamed in the firelight. Aunt Bacchisia began to tell about their trip. She spoke of the great coat worn by the young lawyer, and of the wings in fashion among the Nuorese ladies. Then she described the Poru's kitchen, and told of their meeting a man on the road, but of the discussion started by Aunt Poreda at the supper-table, and of the purchases she and Giovanna had made, she said never a word. She knew, however, very well that Aunt Martina could hardly wait to see the new possessions, and was herself 
no less anxious to display them. "'And what have you to say about it all, Giovanna?' said Brontu, stirring the fire with the end of his stick. "'You are very quiet to-night. What is the matter?' "'I am tired,' she replied, and then suddenly asked about Jacobi de Jath. "'That crazy man, he torments the life out of me. I shall end some day by kicking him out. He does not need to work now for a living anyhow.' "'I don't know how it is,' said Aunt Pakicia. "'He used to be such a cheerful soul, and now when he has a house and cattle, and they even say he is going to be married, his temper is something. You knew, didn't you, that he threatened to beat us?' "'Did he ever come back?' "'No, never since that time.' "'Nor Isidoro Pane, either,' said Giovanna, in a dull voice. "'I thought I saw him go by here yesterday evening,' said Aunt Martina. Giovanna raised her head quickly, but she did not speak, and Brontu laughingly remarked that he supposed she did not stand in any particular need of leeches just at present. "'Well,' said Aunt Martina at length, "'didn't you bring me anything from Nuoro? You keep one a long time in suspense.' They had, in fact, brought her an apron. But Aunt Pakicia feigned surprise and mortification. "'Of course,' said she, "'we had forgotten for the moment.' And she gave a shrill laugh, but sobered down instantly on observing that Giovanna took no part in these pleasantries and seemed unable to shake off her melancholy. "'No, no, we never thought about it, but Giovanna will show you a few trifles that we bought.' Giovanna got up, lighted a candle, and went into the adjoining room, Brontu's ardent gaze following her. Aunt Martina sat waiting for her present. Several moments passed, and Giovanna did not return. "'What is she doing in there?' asked Brontu. "'Who knows?' Another minute elapsed. "'I am going to see.' he said, jumping up and walking towards the door. "'No, no! What are you thinking of?' said Aunt Pakicia, but so faint-heartedly that Aunt Martina, scandalised, called to her son to come back with energetic tss-tss. Brontu, however, paying no attention, tiptoed to the door. Giovanna was standing before an open drawer, re-reading a letter which she had found slipped underneath the door when they had got home that day. It was a heartbroken appeal from Constantino. In his round, unformed characters he implored her, for the last time, not to do this thing that she was about to do. He reminded her of the faraway time of their early love. He promised to come back. He assured her solemnly of his innocence. "'If you have no pity for me,' the letter concluded, "'at least have some for yourself, for your own soul. "'Remember the mortal sin. "'Remember eternity.' "'Ah, the same words that Aunt Pareda had used, "'the very same, the very same. "'Uncle Isidoro must have slipped the letter in while they were away. "'How long had it been?' 
since they had had any direct news of the prisoner. The tears rushed to her eyes, but what moved her were probably more the memories of the past than any thoughts of that eternal future. Suddenly she heard the door being pushed softly open, and someone stealing in behind her. Leaning quickly over, she began to rummage in the drawer with trembling hands and misty eyes. Brontu stood directly behind her with outstretched arms. He clasped her around the shoulders, and she, pretending to be frightened, began to tremble. "'What is it? What are you doing?' he asked in a low, broken voice. "'Oh, I am looking, looking, the apron we got for your mother. I don't know what I have done with it.' "'Let me go, let me go,' she said, trying to free herself from his embrace. Close to her face she saw his white teeth gleaming between the full, smiling lips, as red and lustrous as two ripe cherries. Then suddenly she felt his hand behind her head, and those two burning lips were pressed close to her own in a kiss that was like the blast from a fiery furnace. "'Ah!' she panted. We have forgotten eternity. A little later, she was seated once more in her place by the fire, laughing with all the abandonment of a happy child, while Bron too regarded her with the same look in his eyes that he had when he had been drinking. The winter passed by. Constantino's friends never abandoned their efforts to break off the accursed match, but in vain. The Dejasas and Eras were like people bewitched, and remained deaf alike to prayers, threats, and innuendos. The syndic, even the syndic, a pale and haughty personage who resembled Napoleon I, was against this devil's marriage, and when Brontu and Giovanna came to him in great secrecy to have it published, he treated them with the utmost contempt spitting on the ground all the time they were there. When the question of the divorce had first been mooted, people talked and wondered, but nothing more. Then, when it was said that Brontu and Giovanna were in love with each other, there was general disapproval, yet at bottom the community was not ill-pleased to have such a fruitful theme to gossip about. But when there was talk of a marriage, then everyone said it was simply and purely an impossibility. The neighbours laughed and rather hoped that Brontu was amusing himself at the expense of the eras. After that, had the young people merely lived together in mortal sin, probably nothing more would have been said, and people would have ceased to laugh and thought no more about it. It would not have been the first time that such a thing had occurred, nor was it likely to be the last, and Giovanna could cite her youth and poverty by way of excuse. But marry a woman who had already had a husband? Marry her? That was a thing not to be stood. What would you have? People are made that way. And then the disgrace and scandal of it! Why, it was a sin, a horrible sin, and it was feared that God might punish the entire community for the fault of these two. 
There were even threats of making a demonstration on the marriage day, whistling, stone-throwing, and beating the bride and bridegroom. When rumours of these things reached their ears, Brontu became very angry, and Pakisia said, "'Leave them to me!' And Hunt Martina threw up her head with the movement of a war-horse when it sensed the smell of the first volley. Ah, she would rather like to fight and win. She was beginning to feel old. She was tired of work and well pleased at the prospect of having a strong servant in the house without wages. Moreover, she liked Giovanna, and Brontu wanted her, and so people might burst with envy if they chose. On the evening of the day when the marriage was published, Uncle Isidoro Panne was working hard in his miserable hut by the brilliant ruddy light of a large fire. This was the one luxury which Uncle Isidoro was able to allow himself, a good fire, since he collected his wood from the fields, the river-banks, and the forests. During the winter his chief occupation was weaving cord out of horsehair. He knew, in fact, how to do a little of almost everything—spin, sew, cook, when there was anything to cook, patch shoes, and yet he had never been able to escape from dire poverty. Suddenly the door was thrown open. There was a momentary glimpse of the March sky, not stormy but overcast, and Jacobi de Jasse silently seated himself beside the fire. The fisherman's kitchen looked like one of those pictures of Flemish interiors, where the figures are thrown out in a ruddy glow against a dark background. By the uncertain light a grey spider-web could be dimly discerned, with the spider in the middle. In the corner near the hearth a glass jug filled to the brim with water in which black leeches swam about, a yellow basket against the wall, and finally the figures of the two men and the black hair-cord its loose ends held between the bony, red fingers of the old fisherman. "'And how goes it now?' asked Jacobi. "'How goes it now?' "'How goes it now?' repeated the old man. "'I don't know.' "'Well, it's been published,' said Jacobi, more as though he were talking to himself. The thing is actually done. The drunkard never even came near the pastures today, so I just took myself off as well. They may steal his sheep if they want to. I don't care. Here I am, and something has got to be done, Isidoro Panne. Hi, Isidoro Panne, leave that cord alone and listen to me. Something has got to be done. Do you hear me? Yes, I hear you. "'But what is there to do? We have all done what we can—implored, expostulated, threatened. The syndic has interfered, the clerk, priest Elias—oh, priest Elias, what did he do? Talk to them with sugar in his mouth. He should have threatened them. He should have said, "'I'll take the holy books, and I'll curse you. I'll excommunicate you.' You shall never be able to satisfy your hunger, nor to quench your thirst, nor to have any peace. You shall live in a hell upon earth. And then you would have seen some result. But no, he is a dunce, a warm milk priest, and he has not done his duty. Don't speak of him to me. It makes me angry. Isidoro 
laid down the cord. "'It's of no use to get angry,' said he. "'Priest Elias has no business with threats, and he has not used them. "'But never fear. Excommunication will fall on that house all the same. "'Well, I am going to leave them. Yes, I am going away. "'I'll eat no more of their accursed bread.' said Jacobi, with a look expressive of his loathing and disgust. But before going, I should like to have the pleasure of administering a sound thrashing to those favourites of the devil. "'You are crazy, little spring-bird,' said Isidoro, with a melancholy smile, imitating Jacobi. "'Yes, I am. I'm crazy. But even so, what do you care? You haven't done anything either to stop this sacrilege. Oh, it's disgraceful. I've lost all my good spirits. It has made me ten years older. All my good spirits, and I keep thinking all the time of what Constantino will say to us for not being able to put a stop to it. Is it true that he is ill?' "'Not now. He was ill. But now he is only desperate.' said Uncle Isidoro, shaking his head. Then he picked up the cord and began plaiting it again, murmuring below his breath, "'Excommunicate! Excommunicate!' "'I get so furious that I foam at the mouth, the way a dog does,' said Jacobi, raising his voice, "'just exactly like a dog!' "'No, after all, I don't think I'll quit that house. "'I'll stay there if I burst, "'and see them when the blast of excommunication strikes them. "'Yes, if there is one thing that is sure, "'it is that God punishes both in this life and the other two. "'And I want to be on hand when it comes. "'What is it that you are making, Uncle Sidoro?' "'A horsehair cord.' "'There was a short silence.' Jacobi sat staring at the cord, his eyes dim with grief and anger. "'What are you going to do with it when it is done?' "'Sell it, over in Nuoro. I sell them here, too, sometimes. The peasants use them to tie their cows. What makes you look at it like that? You are not thinking of hanging yourself, are you?' "'No, little spring-bird. You can do that for yourself, if it is God's will.' "'Yes,' he continued, again raising his voice, "'they have actually published the notice!' Another silence. Then Isidoro said, "'Who knows? I can't help hoping yet that that marriage may never come off. I have faith in God, and I believe that San Constantino may still perform some miracle to stop it.' "'Why, certainly, why not?' "'A miracle by all means,' said Jacobi, scornfully. "'Yes, why not?' replied Isidoro calmly. "'The real murder of Basilio Leda might die now, for instance, and confess. "'In that case, the divorce could not hold good.' "'Of course, die just at this precise time!' said the other in the same tone as before. "'You are as innocent as a three-year-old child, Isidoro, with your Christian faith.' "'Well, who knows? Or he might be found out.' "'Why, to be sure, he might be found out, just in the nick of time. Only what has anyone ever known about it, 
and who is to find him out? Who? Why, you, I, anyone. There you go again, just like a three-year-old child, or rather a snail before it's out of the shell. And how, pray, are we to find him out? Are we even certain that Constantino did not do it himself? Yes, we are certain, entirely so, said Isidoro. It might have been any one of us, but never him. I might have done it, or you. Jacobi got up. Well, what can you suggest to do? If there is anything to be done, tell me. Anyone but him, repeated Isidoro, without raising his head. Yes, there is one thing to do. Commit ourselves into the hands of God. Oh, you make me so angry, cried the other, stamping about the forlorn little room like an imprisoned bull. I ask if there are any steps to be taken, and you answer like a fool. I'll go and choke Bacchisia Era. That will be really something to do. And he marched off as he had come, without greeting or salutation of any kind, angry this time in earnest. Uncle Isidoro likewise did not so much as raise his head, but noticing presently that his visitor had left the door open, he got up to close it, and stood for some moments looking out. It was a mild March night, moonlit but overcast. Already one got faint damp whiffs, suggestive of the first stirrings of vegetation. All about the old man's hovel, the hedges and wild shrubs seemed to lie sleeping in the faint, mysterious light of the veiled moon. Far away, just above the horizon, a streak of clear sky wound and zigzagged its way among the vaporous clouds, like a deep blue river on whose banks a fire burned. Isidoro shut the door and with a heavy sigh resumed his work. End of chapter 10 Recording by Tom Denham